0: Welcome to The Law with D.K. Williams. Giving the courts credit when they get it right, calling them out when they get it wrong. And welcome back to The Law. I am D.K. Williams and this is episode 75. Can you believe it when you're talking about anniversaries? 75th is the Diamond Anniversary. So this is the Diamond Edition episode And we're going to discuss Ex Parte Milligan, a United States Supreme Court case from 1866, just after the Civil War ended, about martial law, alleged disloyalty during the Civil War. Can't get much sexier than that. Now, the topic of martial law has been mentioned more than once recently in popular culture, online, and various other resources. This arises out of the stay-at-home orders out there, applicable across most of the United States, if not all of it, due to this COVID-19 pandemic. I'll just talk about the one here in Denver and the one here in Colorado. And they're completely unenforceable. They're more like stern requests with the bluff of jail time or other penalty. If anyone is stopped for being outside or for driving and not having the appropriate destination, always, of course, as we've talked about, record the transaction. Heck, now I'm thinking live stream it if you can. And say politely to the officer, something to the effect of, officer, I appreciate your work. As a patriotic American, I take my rights as protected by the Constitution seriously, and I never waive them. They're too precious. Therefore, I am asserting my right to remain silent. I do not consent to any searches. So am I being detained, officer, or am I free to go? Of course, be prudent. All right, take care of yourself, take care of others, don't be dumb, but never succumb to illegitimate state power. Acquiescing is un-American. Don't be un-American. And that is ultimately what this case, Ex parte Milligan, is about. What is America based on? Why did our founders fight a war? Is America based on authoritarian power? Whenever those in control deem it necessary to ignore the Constitution for safety reasons? Because that's the argument made by the government in Ex parte Milligan. Is it okay to ignore the constitution when the smart people that we trust our lives to? And that's the problem right there if we if anybody believes that that's what we should be doing to begin with. So if it's necessary for safety to save the kids or the whales or whatever, or does America represent the notion that freedom cannot be abridged even when things get tough, when they get hard, when they get dangerous? And this is where my sign off phrase comes from. Freedom is dangerous live dangerously now thank goodness the supreme court got it right in this case decided shortly after the civil war as always the law with dk williams is brought to you in collaboration with speakeasy ideas you can subscribe to the law and all the other speakeasy ideas podcasts there's two of us through your favorite podcast app and that's speakeasyideas.com so if you go to your podcast app you're going to look for this podcast, search for Speakeasy Ideas. It'll pop up and you'll see The Law episode, whatever. There'll be a whole list of them there. There'll also be another uh, set of podcasts from Tom winner. But that's how you find it, Speakeasy Ideas. And go to speakeasyideas.com slash the law, and you'll have a list of these podcasts there for you as well. Follow this podcast on social media. That's Twitter at The Law, D-K-W, and on Facebook.com slash The Law with D-K-Williams i like to hear from you. If you like the podcast, leave a comment, spread the word about us. And I'm available to come talk to your group me, or for any media appearances. Contact Bethany at speakeasyideas.com for details. Likewise, contact Bethany if you'd like to contribute to our work here at The Law via a sponsorship. And if you have a legal question, out of Colorado, this is the only place I'm, I'm licensed to practice. Used to be licensed in North Carolina, but that was a long time ago. So if you have a question, hit me up via text or voicemail at 303 588 Two, seven, three, one. If I can't help, maybe I can point you in the right direction. So I want to look at the timeline here of things that are going on. A lot was going on here in 1864 to 65 at the end of the Civil War. Our petitioner here, not a plaintiff, it's a petitioner. He's petitioning for a writ of habeas corpus. We'll talk about exactly what that means. It was Lambden Milligan. Lambden is spelled L-A-M-B-D-I-N. So, like a lamb, D-I-N, Lambden Milligan. Okay, so he was arrested on October 5th of 1864 in Indiana, which is where he grew up, for allegedly supporting the Confederacy, conspiring against the Union War effort, and other quote-unquote disloyal acts. He was taken before a military commission, not a civilian court, a couple weeks later on October 21st of 1864, the time he was arrested to the time he went to this military commission, just a couple of weeks. He was found guilty of a list of various acts of disloyalty to the Union and sentenced to be hanged. His execution was set for May 19th of 1865. Now, before his execution date, a lot happened in the Civil War. So Lee surrendered to Grant at Appomattox Courthouse on April 9th of 1865, a month before he was scheduled to be hanged. Also in April of 1865, Lincoln was assassinated on April 15th, and I had never really considered how little time had passed between Appomattox courthouse and Lincoln's assassination. It was like six days. Milligan filed a habeas petition, which is a petition to be released from custody, on May tenth of eighteen sixty-five. This is just nine days before his scheduled execution. And for whatever reason, the way things were set up at this time, only two federal judges. And remember, this is a civilian court. He was convicted of crimes and a military commission, but this petition to be allowed to be released to be able to argue that you're being held illegally, that's a civil matter. And only two federal judges heard his petition for writ of habeas corpus, and they split one-to-one. He appealed that because he didn't win, and the U.S. Supreme Court heard it, and that's what we're talking about today. They entered a decision in his favor on April 3rd, 1866. Now, he did win in a unanimous decision, All nine justices agreed that he should be released, although four justices wrote separately to disagree with part of the majority's decision. But they all agreed he was illegally tried in a military court and should be released. And then what happened to Milligan after he won and was released from federal custody? Opinions never tell you that, of course, because they can't. They don't know at that time. So after he was released from prison, he won at the U.S. Supreme Court, returned to his hometown, and he was a lawyer. He went back to his law practice in Huntington, Indiana. So about two years later, after he won at the Supreme Court, he filed a civil lawsuit seeking damages related to his arrest, conviction and incarceration and sued the government. He had a two week jury trial on his case for damages. The defendants hired future president Benjamin Harrison to represent them. And Milligan's civil suit was apparently the first major civil rights jury trial held before the federal courts. And at issue was damages because the Supreme Court had already said he had been wrongly imprisoned. How much, if anything, is he entitled to for that? Harrison, the future president representing the government, the defendants in the civil suit, portrayed Milligan as a traitor. While Milligan's lawyer focused on his malicious prosecution, the fact that Milligan had been maliciously prosecuted and falsely imprisoned. Milligan never admitted his affiliation or actions with a seditious organization. And the jury came back with the verdict in Milligan's favor. Now, Milligan was trying to get thousands of dollars in damages, but somehow state and federal statutes limited the claim to what he could recover to $5 plus court costs. I don't know what the court costs were, but $5 in 1871, plug in as the old trusty inflation calculator, and that equals just over $108 now. So let's look at the justices in this Supreme Court case here in 1866, just as the Civil War has ended, just a couple of months after that. David Davis wrote the majority opinion. He was on the court from 1862 until 1877 when he retired to become U.S. Senator from Illinois. So that kind of thing used to happen. And it could, again, conceivably. And you might think, hey, this guy was from Illinois. He probably knew Lincoln. And you're right, he did. Lincoln nominated him to the Supreme Court, and he had also served as Lincoln's campaign manager in 1860, when he won. A little political quid pro quo is not new. Also on the court, and ruling in Milligan's favor, was Nathan Clifford. He was on the bench from 1858 until 1881, when he died at 77, so he stayed until his last breath. Nominated by James Buchanan, who was a Democrat. Of course, the party affiliations then and now are hardly recognizable. Clifford had been the ambassador to Mexico. He had been U.S. Attorney General and had been, been in the House of Representatives, a lifelong politician. Also on the court was Stephen with a P.H. Field on the court from 1863 to 1897, nominated by Lincoln. And I think it's interesting to note that five of the nine justices on this case were nominated by Lin- Lincoln, and they ruled against what Lincoln did in this case, and we'll talk about that. Stephen Field had been the Chief Justice of California Supreme Court, and California had just become a state in 1850, so right in that area decade preceding the Civil War. Also on the court ruling in favor of Milligan, Robert Greer. He had been on the job, or ended up being on the job as a U.S. Supreme Court Justice for 24 years, from 1846 until 1870. He retired, didn't die in office. Lived about another nine months before he died at the age of 76. Now he is nominated by James K. Polk, who was born in North Carolina, although he became he grew up in Tennessee and became the governor of Tennessee before he became president. Greer's wife had a lovely name that just struck me as a great name, Isabel Rose. And these are just people like you and me with names like Isabel Rose. I can imagine Robert Greer, his wife Isabel, sitting on the porch drinking some lemonade. These are just people. They're not mythical beings. Passing judgment from Mount Olympus. Also in the court, Samuel Nelson. He spent 27 years on the bench from 1845 until 1872. He was nominated by John Tyler, who was the 10th president. Nelson retired from the bench and lived another year, and he passed away at the age of 81. The people on the concurrence, who they all agreed that Milligan should be released, he was illegally tried and jailed. But these four members of the Supreme Court argued about some of the reasoning of the five, but all agreed at the same outcome. The concurrence in the result was written by Chief Justice Salmon Chase, nominated by Lincoln, served from 1864 to 1873. Chase took Roger Taney's seat after Taney died. Of course, Taney wrote Dred Scott, Chase died on the bench at the age of... Not literally. He was still a Supreme Court Justice when he died at the age of 65. Chase presided over the Senate trial of President Andrew Johnson after Johnson had been impeached by the House. And that's a whole political story right there. Chase had been the Secretary of Treasury for Lincoln. Now, the bank now known as J P Morgan Chase, which was formerly Chase Manhattan Bank, was named after him, but he had nothing to do with the bank itself. They just named it in his honor. Also on the bench, James Wayne a Southerner from Georgia, born in Savannah, which is a beautiful place. He was on the bench from 1835 to 1867. So at the time of this case was decided he just had a year left on the bench, had been nominated by Andrew Jackson. Now he was a Southerner from Georgia, but he remained loyal to the union during the civil war and kept his spot on the bench. But his son, Henry Wayne was a Confederate general James Wayne, Supreme Court Justice, stayed in office until he died at the age of 76 or 77. Apparently, we're not sure. Noah Swain, also on the bench. So, we had a Wayne and a Swain, which sounds like a hip-hop group. He is on the bench from 1862 to 1881, one of Lincoln's nominees. He retired and lived another three years and passed away at the age of 79. Finally, we have Samuel Miller, also nominated by Lincoln in 1862, served until his death in 1890. 28 years on the bench. So that brings a tally of the Lincoln nominees of the Supreme Court to five out of nine here. Now, this case, this opinion, it was presented unlike any other opinion I've read from the Supreme Court. It starts with the briefs of the parties. And there's several lawyers who argue for the government and several that argue for Milligan. So that's all laid out. I mean, it's unusual. Then after you read the briefs, in essence, I don't know if that's what they call them, but that's how they read. Then you get to the actual court opinion. Now, the whole thing is 79 pages on PDF. The actual opinion starts on page 58. So if you do look at it, and of course, as always, I have a link to the actual opinion in the show notes, so you can. That's one of the major reasons I'm doing this is to provide that resource. If you read it, beware of the unusual way it is presented. It took me a second to figure out. I'm like, what? This reads like an argument. This doesn't read like a Supreme Oh, it is an argument. We're not to the Supreme Court opinion yet. Be aware of that if you do read it. I read all of it, and I'm glad I did because I got to learn a little bit about and read the great argument by Jeremiah Black. He was one of Milligan's lawyers. He had been one of these political famous guys. He had been James Buchanan's secretary of state and attorney general and buchanan had nominated him to the supreme court in 1861 some five years before he was arguing before it but the senate rejected him he's got some great language we'll hit some of the highlights of that in uh, in support of freedom against tyranny against martial law and of course i can't cover i'm not going to cover everything in all 79 pages which is another reason i included a link to the case so you can check it out yourself if you are so if you so wish so we know the supreme court we already talked about ruled in milligan's favor Oyez.com summarized the decision and said that the court held that trials of civilians by presidentially created military commissions are unconstitutional. And Remember, this was a military commission set up under Lincoln or pursuant to Lincoln's orders. Specifically, it is unconstitutional to try civilians by a military tribunal unless there is no civilian court available. And there were plenty of them available at this time. The military commission here, did not have jurisdiction to try and sentence Milligan, and he was entitled to discharge. So that's the ultimate outcome. Let's look at the words of the opinion, including some of Black's argument and some of the government's argument. Now, as a starting point, what is a petition for writ of habeas corpus? It is a legal process, and you have to write it down, so it is a writ. It's used to bring a prisoner, someone who's incarcerated in custody, before a court to determine if that person's imprisonment or detention is unlawful and he should be released. It is basically the ability to challenge one's incarceration in the courts. Now, the Constitution specifically allows for the ability to file a writ of habeas corpus to be suspended. So it's very, very important thing. And this opinion talks about the history of it way back in common law hundreds of years with the kings and the right to be able to argue, hey, I should be not in jail right now. But it can be suspended. Look at the Constitution. We'll go right to the language. Article 1, which deals with the executive power, Section 9, Clause 2 says, quote, The privilege of the writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended unless when in cases of rebellion, which is what we're dealing with, right, or invasion, the public safety may require it. That's what it says. So pursuant to that power, the Civil War Congress passed a statute that allowed for Lincoln to suspend that privilege, as it's referred to in the Constitution, throughout the country, which Lincoln did. That act was called the Habeas Corpus Suspension Act, signed into law March of 1863. So you got the Civil War going. Lincoln exercised his powers under this act in September of 63, suspended Habeas Corpus throughout the Union. So this applied to no Habeas Corpus in any case involving prisoners of war spies traitors or military personnel so that includes people that could be civilians which in this case it did milligan was arrested and tried by a military commission now this act and suspending habeas corpus didn't authorize the military to try civilians but the the act meant that once you're incarcerated you don't have the ability to challenge your incarceration so it, it gives the government basically a blank check to arrest and incarcerate opponents of the government which is obviously problematic but the suspension didn't mean the military can try you and ignore the protections in the Bill of Rights, the Bill of Restrictions, as we've talked about, because it restricts government, it doesn't grant rights. So this statute didn't give the military the authority to try people and then sentence them to death, which is what they did here. And of course, this entire notion of a habeas suspension is problematic because even the Constitution says, when public safety may require it. Well, what does that mean? May require? Who decides what? when it is required well congress does and they can pass a statute like they did here give the power to the president and then he's got the, the discretion to suspend it not a very stringent standard what if congress felt public safety required it after 9 11. well the constitution says they have the power to do that or because of a virus throughout the country this is so dangerous we have to suspend habeas corpus so if you get arrested for being outside you can't challenge that you, you're just going to stay in jail As long as this this, uh, suspension is ongoing, they can do it under the Constitution. That's why this case is important. That's why it is being mentioned now. Not necessarily the case, but martial law and the government telling you you can't leave your house under certain conditions. So what was Milligan, who was a citizen, citizen of Indiana, part of the Union, charged with by this military commission? One, conspiracy against the government of the United States. Two, affording aid and comfort to rebels against the authority of the United States three, inciting insurrection, four, disloyal practices, and five, violation of the laws of war. It seems all of these charges, particularly the first four, inciting insurrection, disloyal practices, etc., all of those could have been levied against the founders of this country. Inciting insurrection, yes. Disloyal practices to the king, yes. Conspiracy against the government of the monarchy of Great Britain, yes. Offering aid and comfort to rebels against the authority of the king? Yes. It's just here that it's all these things are against the government of the United States. I think it's important to point those things out. And especially this disloyal practices charge. Who gets to decide that? The government does, right? If, if that's a legitimate crime. And the charges include alleged specific instances of each of those things. Milligan objected to the authority of this military commission to try him. And the military commission overruled his objection. They said, no, nah, we're not going to hear it. And imagine that. Of course they did. So he was tried and convicted, sentenced to death. The questions that the Supreme Court is looking at, one, ought a writ of habeas corpus to be issued? Two, ought the said Milligan be discharged from custody, as in said petition, which is yes. So they answered the first two, yes. And three, whether the military commission had jurisdiction legally to try and sentence Milligan. And the answer to that is no. And much of the arguments and the decision deal with jurisdiction. Again, it's a very important legal concept, but it's boring for our purposes. And we're going to talk more about the merits of Milligan's case, specifically martial law, and when the government can just arrest you and hold you. Now, the government, in its argument, they wrote, martial law is the will of the commanding officer of an armed force, expressed in time of war within the limits of his military jurisdiction, as necessity demands and prudence dictates, restrained or enlarged by the orders of his military chief or supreme executive ruler, the president, in essence. As necessity demands and prudence dictates, that's no standard at all. Who decides what is prudent? Who decides what the necessity demands? What we're discussing here is unlimited power because it's undefined. Anybody can say, oh, yeah, necessity demands this and prudence dictates this. Well, that's a subjective judgment. So it's unlimited power. Now, prudence is hardly a workable standard. It's a great concept, but as a limitation on government power, it's useless. Although prudence is a lovely name for a girl. Now, martial law was discussed as different from military law and the laws of war. And the government does set this out, I think, pretty well. So you you talked about martial law. Military law is the rules and regulations made by the legislative power of the state for the government of its land and naval for- forces. So, Congress can write rules for people in the military. That's military law, not the same thing as martial law. And third, the laws of war are the laws which govern, such as they are, the conduct of belligerent nations towards each other during hostilities. So, these distinctions are made throughout the arguments and the Supreme Court opinion itself, and those definitions are important. Now, government makes this frightening argument. Get this the officer executing martial law is at the same time supreme legislator supreme judge and supreme executive as necessity makes his will the law only he can define and declare it and whether or not it is infringed and of the extent of the infraction he alone can judge and his sole order punishes or acquits the alleged offender so that's what the government is arguing for hey it's it's a war We're in a war with the Confederacy. Therefore, with martial law, whoever's in charge is a king, in essence, because it's necessary. This is the opposite of any kind of freedom. It's pure authoritarianism, and that's rejected by the court in some great language, and we'll get to that. Lincoln as commander-in-chief by a proclamation of September 24th, 1862, ordered. So this is the president's proclamation. During the existing insurrection and as a necessary means for suppressing the same, all rebels and insurgents, their aiders and abettors within the United States, and all persons discouraging volunteer enlistments, resisting militia drafts, or guilty of any disloyal practice, pretty broad power here, affording aid and comfort to the rebels against the authority of the United States shall be subject to martial law this is the president, and liable to trial and punishment by courts, martial or military commission. And they called this guy the Great Emancipator. Now, just a quick aside, of course, the Emancipation Proclamation didn't free any slaves. It didn't apply to the slave states who remained in the Union, Maryland, Missouri, Delaware, and Kentucky. They were loyal states. They had slaves. Emancipation Proclamation explicitly excludes them from having to free their slaves. It also applied to any portion of the Confederate states under control of the Union. So if they had physical control of a area with a plantation with slaves on it, they're not freed either because the government, the Union, has control over that. So this Emancipation Proclamation is one of the biggest lies that is taught as the truth by schools. Back to this proclamation. Not the Emancipation Proclamation, but this suspension of habeas proclamation. Those disloyal are subject to courts martial. So regardless of military or civilian status, according to Lincoln. And anyone deemed disloyal by those in control is subject to martial law, which and indefinite detention. That's not greatly emancipating anything. And here's the problem. If the government can just say, hey, you're disloyal, and you can say, no, I I'm, I'm loyal, well, the government said you're not. So they've deemed you disloyal. Whoever's in control can deem you disloyal, and lock you up forever. It's the same thing now with people that say terrorists don't have rights. Well, who's going to decide who's a terrorist? The people in control. Right now, it would be Trump and the Attorney General Barr. Prior to that, it would have been Obama and Eric Holder. So you want those guys to be able to just deem you something? You're deemed disloyal during the Civil War, or you're deemed a terrorist, and then there's nothing you can do about it because you could say, hey, I'm an American citizen, I have rights. Well, no, because rights don't apply to terrorists, you terrorist. You don't get to argue that because we've deemed you a terrorist or we've deemed you disloyal. That's complete and utter authoritarianism. It's what we fought against to start this country. The president's proclamation also said, the writ of habeas corpus is suspended in respect to all persons arrested or who now or hereafter during the rebellion shall be imprisoned in any fort, camp, arsenal military prison or other place of confinement by any military authority or by the sentence of any court, martial or military commission. There's a lot of power here given to the military. Basically, they, they've suspended the entire Constitution, and the Supreme Court says you can't do that. Now, the government makes this statement. This is just kind of a quick aside. The people of every sovereign state possess all the rights and powers of government. They just mentioned that as a starting point. Yeah, this is obvious. States possess rights of government and powers of government. Very true statement. But that would shock so many people today. What? The states have the power of government? Nah, the states are mere political subdivisions of the federal government. They must do whatever the feds tell them. This is just another gross misunderstanding of how our government is set up. States are sovereign, except to the extent the Constitution gives the federal government power. Article 1, Section 8 gives the federal government the power to do certain things. Another indictment of our educational system in this country. One of the lawyers from Milligan, David Field, asks this in his argument. Is it true that the moment a declaration of war is made, the executive department of this government, without an act of Congress, becomes absolute master of our liberties and our lives? Are we then subject to martial rule as opposed to martial law? And they talk about that, it's a great distinction. Are we subject to martial rule administered by the president upon his own sense of the exigency, with nobody to control him, and with every magistrate and every authority in the land subject to his will alone? Excellent question. Of course not. And thankfully, the Supreme Court answered those questions in Milligan's favor and in favor of freedom and the Constitution. Field argues, if the president has this awful power, whence does he derive it? He can exercise no authority whatever but that which the constitution of the country gives him. And the Supreme Court agrees with this argument that that power exercised over Milligan has no constitutional basis. Field says, the plan of argument, which I propose, is first to examine the text of the constitution. Great idea, right? But that's rather novel in today's media. Media and pundits argue policy like Obamacare, whether or not that's a good idea or not. They don't even touch the issue of whether or not the constitution allows it. Some great language and feels argument, and I can't go over all of his great prose. But here's a great point he makes I say what is called martial law, for strictly, there is no such thing as martial law. It is martial rule, that is to say, the will of the commanding officer and nothing more, nothing less. He points out how the law presupposes some kind of structure and process, and there is neither under martial rule. He's saying, Don't call it martial law, it's not a law. It's just giving somebody the power to control everything. It's rule. It's not law. Field goes on. He quotes the Duke of Wellington, going back to the common law in British history. He says, quotes, what is ordinarily called a martial law is no law at all. Let us call the thing by its right name. It is not martial law, but martial rule. And when we speak of it, let us speak of it as abolishing all law and substituting the will of the military commander, and we shall give a true idea of the thing and be able to reason about it with a clear sense of what we are doing. That's beautiful. Another highlight from Field's argument in support of Milligan, he says, The prevailing sentiment of the time when the Constitution was framed was a dislike and dread of executive authority. Absolutely it was. And it seems that in 2020, far too many people, instead of dislike and dread, of executive authority worship that executive authority you know like an unenforceable and unconstitutional order to stay home by the way this david field lawyer representing milligan was the brother of stephen with the ph field sitting on the supreme court bench evidence that we've had uh, oligarchy for a long time all of these guys know each other are, are related james garfield also argued for milligan the future president so he's got some heavy hitters, right? He went way back and deep into the history of military tribunals and their legitimate and illegitimate uses. Great history. And then we get to Jeremiah Black's arguments, also representing Milligan. He's one of my new favorite people. He had been President James Buchanan's, like we talked about, U.S. Attorney General, U.S. Secretary of State. And he was nominated to the Supreme Court, but did not, his nomination didn't get out of the Senate. So this Senate confirmation is not new. This confirmation drama is not new. It's been going on forever. And I treated out several of his quotes while I was reading his argument. So follow me on Twitter at TheLawDKW uh, for highlights like that in the future. And I recommend reading Black's arguments entirely. It's so good. Just a few highlights from what Black argued before the Supreme Court on behalf of Milligan. They, the founders, knew very well that no people could be free under a government which had the power to punish without restraint. He goes on, our fathers, our founding fathers, the founding fathers, were not absurd enough to put unlimited power in the hands of the ruler and take away the protection of law from the rights of individuals. Again, a distrust of the executive doing things like ordering everybody to stay inside. He says, a tyrannical government calls everybody a traitor who shows the least unwillingness to be a slave. That's beautiful stuff. He goes on, if, and this is powerful. Let me just read you what he said. If any minister or any king, now he's talking about back in history, because the United States government and law comes from British history. He says, if any minister or any king in war or in peace had dared to punish a freeman by a tribunal of his own appointment and not a jury of peers, he would have roused the wrath of the whole population. All orders of society would have resisted it, lord and vassal, knight and squire, priest and penitent, master and thrall would have risen in mass and burnt the offender to death in his castle or followed him in his flight and torn him to atoms. That's pretty violent stuff. And he's saying that's how strongly the people, all orders of society would have felt about a king appointing people that he that are loyal to him to try a freeman. They would burn him in his castle or chase him down and Tear him to atoms, A-T-O-M-S, atoms. And that's how freedoms are kept. The people in control have to be afraid of the people they are trying to control. And they have to know their place. And that's what Black is saying. They knew their place. Now we have to keep them there. Here's some more great stuff from Black. Court sycophants and party hacks. That sounds like something that could be written today, right? But this was 1866. Court sickfence and party hacks have many times written pamphlets and perhaps large volumes to show that those whom they serve should be allowed to work out their bloody will upon the people. No abuse of power is too flagrant to find its defenders. Beautiful stuff. A little bit more from him. In peaceable and quiet times, our legal rights are in little danger of being overborne. But when the wave of power lashes itself into violence and rage and goes surging up against the barriers which were made to confine it, the Constitution, then we need the whole strength of an unbroken Constitution to save us from destruction. Kind of like when the government issues orders for you to stay inside. But Dave, I hear we need to obey and stay inside, we need it, it's necessary. To that, Mr. Black retorts, from 1866, nothing that the worst men ever propounded has produced so much oppression, misgovernment, and suffering as this pretense of state necessity. So saying we need to do it is an excuse for oppression and suffering. If they had that power, if we just looked at the necessity to justify government power, they, the president or Congress, could make war a chronic condition of the country And the slavery of the people perpetual. That's like Orwell made the same point in 1984. The war is not meant to be won. It is made to be perpetual. And Black said that beautifully here in 1866. And that's just some of the highlights from the arguments of both sides. Admittedly, I use more for Milligan's side because they are right. And the Supreme Court agreed. And they had far better, more poetic quotes. So what does the court say? Justice David Davis wrote for the court. The importance of the main question presented by this record cannot be overstated, for it involves the very framework of the government and the fundamental principles of American liberty, of whether or not the government can just keep you in jail forever, without you even having the ability to argue that you're you should be released. He goes on. He notes The president was authorized by Congress to suspend the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus whenever in his judgment the public safety required, and he did by proclamation reciting, among other things, the authority of the statute, suspend the writ. The suspension of the writ does not authorize the arrest of anyone, but simply denies to one arrested the privilege of this writ in order to obtain his liberty. That's a major point. The suspension of habeas had nothing to do with the authority of the military to arrest a civilian and try him. The controlling question in the case is this, he writes, for the court. Upon the facts stated in Milligan's petition— and the exhibits filed, had the military commission mentioned in its jurisdiction legally to try and sentence him? Milligan, not a resident of one of the rebellious states or a prisoner of war, but a citizen of Indiana for 20 years past, never in the military or naval service, is while at his home, arrested by the military power of the United States, imprisoned and on certain criminal charges preferred against him, tried, convicted, and sentenced to be hanged by a military commission organized under the direction of the military commander of the Military District of Indiana, had this tribunal the legal power and authority to try and punish this man. No graver question was ever considered by this court, nor one which merely nearly concerns the rights of the whole people, for it is the birthright of every American citizen, when charged with crime, to be tried and punished according to law." So while it deals with Milligan specifically, it would apply to everyone. The court goes on. By the protection of the law, human rights are secured. Withdraw that protection and they are at the mercy of wicked rulers or the clamor of an excited people. Now, wicked rulers we all can get. But what is the clamor of an excited people that we need protection from? That's democracy. And the Constitution was set up to protect the individual from both wicked rulers and the clamor of an excited people. Now, I know that this miseducation of generations of Americans has resulted in a knee-jerk reaction amongst so many people whenever they hear any naysaying of democracy in any way. But it should be naysayed. It has its place, but it is not the ultimate concept to which we strive. And even they know it. Even the ones who can't believe that we have a anything that's not ruled by popular vote, they know that's not what they want. If a clamor of excited people can, and they have, called for certain religious groups to be banned or exiled, that's democracy. If a majority want it, and it's happened many times throughout this country. And even if the vast majority of people in an area want to exile a group, they cannot because the Constitution doesn't allow it. The Constitution protects against the clamor of an excited people. It protects against democracy. It protects the individual from the majority who have the votes to suppress him. And that's what the court is saying here. Government has to protect human rights, individual rights. And if they don't, individuals are at the mercy of wicked rulers, which we all get, or the clamor of an excited people. They're equally as dangerous. The court continues. The history of the world had taught them, the founders, that what was done in the past might be attempted in the future. The Constitution of the United States is a law for rulers and people, equally in war and in peace, and covers with the shield of its protection all classes of men, at all times and under all circumstances, so even during a war, even during a coronavirus. No doctrine, he goes on, involving more pernicious consequences was ever invented by the wit of man than that any of its, the Constitution's, provisions can be suspended during any of the great exigencies of government, such a doctrine that we can just suspend the Constitution when we need to, such a doctrine leads directly to anarchy or despotism. But the theory of necessity, hey if we need to do it, that theory of necessity on which it is based is false. For the government within the Constitution has all the powers granted to it, which are necessary to preserve its existence, as been happily proved by the result of the great effort to throw off It's just authority. He's basically agreeing with Black and Milligan's defense. The time we have to use the Constitution is when it is most tested. The court goes on. One of the plainest constitutional provisions was therefore infringed when Milligan was tried by a court not ordained and established by Congress and not composed of judges appointed during good behavior. In other words, he wasn't tried in a court set up under Article 3 of the Constitution. He was tried by an ad hoc military tribunal who was, in essence, Judge, Jury, and Hangman altogether. Court points out another guarantee of freedom was broken when Milligan was denied a trial by jury. The great minds of the country have differed on the correct interpretation to be given to various provisions of the federal constitution. And judicial decision has been often invoked to settle their true meaning. But until recently, no one ever doubted that the right of trial by jury was fortified in the organic law against the power of attack. So he's saying, yeah, there's some legitimate arguments we can have about what the Constitution means, but the right to jury isn't one of them. And Milligan was denied that right, among others. Court says, when peace prevails and the authority of the government is undisputed, there is no difficulty of preserving the safeguards of liberty, for the ordinary modes of trial are never neglected, and no one wishes it otherwise. But if society is disturbed by civil commotion... If the passions of men are aroused and the restraints of law weakened, if not disregarded, I don't know, like maybe the coronavirus, these safeguards need, back to the court, and should receive the watchful care of those entrusted with the guardianship of the Constitution and laws. In no other way can we transmit to posterity unimpaired the blessings of liberty consecrated by the sacrifices of the revolution. It is claimed by the government that martial law covers with its broad mantle the proceedings of this military commission that convicted Milligan. The proposition is this, that in a time of war the commander of an armed force, if in his opinion the exigencies of the country demand it, and of which he is to judge, he alone has the power within the lines of his military district to suspend all rights and their remedies and subject citizens as well as soldiers to the rule of his will and in the exercise of his lawful authority cannot be restrained except by his superior officer or the president of the United States. If true, he writes for the court, Republican government is a failure and there is an end of liberty regulated by law, martial law, Established on such a basis destroys every guarantee of the Constitution and effectually renders the military independent of and superior to the civil power. The attempt to do, which by the king of Britain, was deemed by our fathers such an offense that they assigned it to the world as one of the causes which impelled them to declare their independence. One of the things listed in the Declaration of Independence that the king did, now the government is trying to say they can do. Civil liberty and this kind of martial law cannot endure together. The antagonism is irreconcilable, and in the conflict, one or the other must perish. Wicked men, ambitious of power, with hatred of liberty and contempt of law, may fill the place once occupied by Washington and Lincoln. And if this right is conceded and the calamities of war again befall us, the dangers to human liberty are frightful to contemplate. Back to Orwell. The war is not meant to be won. It is meant to be continuous so the people in power can keep it. He goes on. But It is insisted by the government that the safety of the country in time of war demands that this broad claim for martial law shall be sustained. And who insists this? Those in charge of the war. If this were true, it could be well said that a country preserved at the sacrifice of all the cardinal principles of liberty is not worth the cost of preservation. Happily, it is not so. And the next part is basically wrapping it up and it is important. It follows, the court says, from what has been said on this subject, that there are occasions when martial rule, not martial law, martial rule can be properly applied if, in foreign invasion or civil war, the courts are actually closed and it is impossible to administer criminal justice according to the law. Then on the theater of active military operations, where the war really prevails, not 500 miles away, There is a necessity to furnish a substitute for the civil authority, thus overthrown. So there's no civil authority. So the substitute for that civil authority is necessary or allowed to preserve the safety of the army and society. And as no power is left but the military, it is allowed to govern by martial rule until, and only until, the laws can have their free course. Martial rule can never exist when the civilian courts are open. And they were open when Milligan was tried, arrested, and sentenced to hang. Milligan's military trial was therefore illegitimate and unconstitutional, and he was ordered released. I'm D.K. Williams, and this has been The Law, Episode 75, Ex Parte Milligan. And it discusses in-depth martial rule and how it applied in that case. And it is still very relevant to today. We are brought to you in collaboration with Speakeasy Ideas. Let me know what you think. Hit me up on Twitter at TheLawDKW and Facebook.com slash TheLawWithDKWilliams. And this case provides no better illustration that freedom is dangerous, my friends. Live dangerously.